It is good to be together in community, isn't it? I love you guys. I really do. I'm glad that you're all here. Thank you. <laughs> well, today is the first week in our new series. Our new series is in the book of Philemon. And we're going to spend three weeks in this series looking at this very short book. It's just one chapter, just 25 verses, and we're going to look at it for three consecutive weeks. And I know that you're asking yourself, how can you possibly look at the same 25 verses for three weeks in a row and not be boring? Well, um, I think the way that we're going to do that, uh, you'll have to be the judge, of course, but um, our plan is to look at this story because there really is a story contained in this little letter that Paul writes. We're going to look at it from three different perspectives. Today, we're looking at it from the perspective of Paul, who's the author of the book, who wrote the letter. Next week, Jason's going to come and speak, and when he gives his message, he will be giving it from the perspective of Philemon, Philemon, who is the recipient of the letter. And then in the third week, Anna is going to speak, and she will be looking at this text from the perspective of Onesimus, and Onesimus is kind of the subject of the letter. That, you know, he's, the, he's what it's all about. And so that's the way we're going to do this. And uh, I hope you'll join us for all three weeks and get three different voices, not just the voices of the people speaking to you, but also the voices of the people who are in the story. So uh, if you know me at all, you know that I'm a fan of having context before we jump into a scriptural text. So I want to give you a little bit of a, just kind of a background of what this letter is about. And hopefully that will help kind of set things right for you so that you know where we're going once we start digging into it a little bit deeper. But uh, Philemon, who, as I said, was the, the recipient of this letter from the Apostle Paul, Philemon was a leader of the church in the city of Colossae. Now, if you know your New Testament, you know that there's also a letter to the Colossians that Paul wrote, and that is the church where Philemon was a leader. Paul had, on one of his missionary journeys, converted... Philemon to Christianity, and Philemon then became a leader of the church in that city. In fact, he and his wife and their son, who are, are all named in this letter, we think, um, host a house church in the city of Colossae. And so from that, we can deduce that he's probably somewhat wealthy. If he's got a house big enough to, to host a church gathering, um, he probably is fairly wealthy. And as as was anybody in that day who was fairly wealthy. In fact, anybody who was probably middle class or above, he was a slave owner. Now, when we hear that, that he's a slave owner, that speaks kind of really nasty stuff to us. And in many ways, even given the context of slavery in, at this time, uh, of course, it should make us feel un, uneasy. Um, we think that slavery is pretty awful. That's not, a, uh, that's not a, uh, <laughs> a statement that you're going to disagree with, I don't think. Not a controversial thing to say. However, it's probably worth noting, even though we're not going to go into it in any depth, that slavery in this part of the world, in, this, in the time this letter was written, is not at all the type of slavery that post-colonial America had in the 19th century, in 17th, 19th century. So um, when you hear slavery, y yes, it's kind of an awful thing, but it's not, it's not the kind of awful that we experienced here in our country uh, for what that's worth. Again, we're not going to talk about the details of that too much. But one of the slaves that Philemon had was Onesimus. And Onesimus, we, we don't really know why, but he ran away. Um, 
he would have, you know, as, as a slave in this time, he would have been more like a household servant than, than kind of a, you know, chains and whips kind of slave, probably. But for some reason, it appears he and Philemon had a falling out. Maybe Philemon was a bit of a jerk. Maybe Onesimus was a bit lazy. Um, and whatever it was, they disagreed, and Onesimus took off. And where did Onesimus go? Well, he went where anybody who runs away from home goes. He went to the big city. Um, <laughs> I'm not entirely sure which city it was. We, I, I think it's probably Rome, but others would say it's probably Ephesus. Either way, whichever city he went to, it was the, at that time that Paul was in prison in that city. The reason I think it's Rome is because Rome, uh, Paul's Roman imprisonment was a house arrest. And um, to move this narrative along, we have to know that Onesimus actually encountered Paul and met him. And Paul, because this is what Paul did... He converted Onesimus to Christianity. Like, Paul's one of those guys who could look at you and suddenly you believe in Jesus, you know. Um, I don't have that gift, but uh, I like to think I'm a slightly nicer guy than Paul probably was, uh, for whatever that's worth. But. So Paul converts Onesimus to Christianity. Now remember, Paul already knew Philemon, the master and former owner of Onesimus. So now Onesimus has come under his care, and Paul has converted both of them to Christianity in different places and times. And now he has to deal with all the ramifications of this complicated dispute and relationship. He has to, he has to traverse the legal issues and the spiritual issues and the interpersonal issues. And so that's why he writes a letter to Philemon. And I'm going to read this whole letter to you. It's it's just 25 verses. It won't take too long. But as I'm reading, I would like to ask you to listen for three things. And you, you don't have to shout them out as they go by, but maybe just kind of go, oh, and you know, like tap, to the, tap the page there if you want as we go by. Uh, and you have Bibles under your chairs. It will be on the screen, but if you'd like to follow along, it's, it's way at the back um, because this is a very short letter of Paul. And if you didn't know, the, the letters of the New Testament are arranged in order from longest to shortest by author. So just before Hebrews, which is long, but Paul didn't write it, probably, is the last letter that Paul did write. On page 970 in your Red Bible is the letter to Philemon. And I ask you to listen for three things. The first is the concept of being a prisoner and language that discusses being in prison so chains and things like that. The second concept is being a partner with somebody or being in a working relationship with somebody. And the third thing is just kind of make a little tally in your head every time Paul uses the word Lord. Okay? So prisoner, partner, and Lord are the things we're listening for. <clears throat> and I'm going to read through this with minimal interruption. Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother... To Philemon, our dear friend and co-worker, to Aphia, our sister, and to Archippus, our fellow soldier, and to the church in your house, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. When I remember you in my prayers, I always thank my God because I hear of your love for all the saints and your faith toward the Lord Jesus. I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective when you perceive all the good that we may do for Christ. I have indeed received much joy and encouragement from your love, 
because the hearts of the saint have been ref- hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you, my brother. For this reason, though I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do your duty, yet I would rather appeal to you on the basis of love. And I, Paul, do this as an old man, and now also as a prisoner of Christ Jesus. I'm appealing to you for my child Onesimus, whose father I have become during my imprisonment. Formerly he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful both to you and to me. Now what Paul is doing here is a pun. Puns are not funny, but Paul did it anyway. Because Onesimus' name literally means useful. And so he's playing on the fact that Onesimus became kind of useless there when he stole stuff and ran away, probably. And now he's become useful again. Formerly he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful, both to you and to me. I'm sending him, that is my own heart, back to you. I wanted to keep him with me so that he might be of service to me in your place during my imprisonment for the gospel. But I preferred to do nothing without your consent, in order that your good deed might be voluntary and not something forced. Perhaps this is the reason he was separated from you for a while, so that you might have him back forever, no longer as a slave, but more than a slave, a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. So, if you consider me your partner, welcome him as you would welcome me. If he has wronged you in any way or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, am writing this with my own hand. And here is when he stops dictating the letter to somebody else and says, no, let me get, let me get that from you for a second. I'm going to write this part myself, either to emphasize the point or, or to make some kind of official seal of the oath that he's about to make when he says, I will repay it. I say nothing about your owing me, even your own self. (laughs) Of course, when you say nothing about it, you're actually saying something about it. Yes, brother, let me have this benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Confident of your obedience, I am writing to you, knowing that you will do even more than I say. One more thing. Prepare a guest room for me, for I am hoping through your prayers to be restored to you. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, sends greetings to you, and so do Mark, Aristarchus, Damas, and Luke, my fellow workers. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, and with yours as well. So today, we're looking at this text, remember, from the perspective of Paul, and what was Paul in this situation? Well, he was an advocate. And I think it's just, this, this letter is just an absolute masterpiece of influential language, of leadership, and of diplomacy. What does Paul have to do here? He has to walk this line, as I said, between his son Philemon, his son in the faith, and his other son in the faith, faith Onesimus, aware of the legal issues, the spiritual issues, and the interpersonal issues. So he has to chart this very rocky course as he's writing this letter. And he does this in a very interesting way. 
The first thing I asked you to listen for was what? Words having to do with being a prisoner. And Paul identifies himself several times in this text as a prisoner or in chains. What does this do? To which party is Paul connecting himself more by calling himself a prisoner? Philemon or Onesimus? Onesimus. Now remember, if you were to put these three men in a hierarchy, a rank, Paul would be at the top. He was the boss. He converted Philemon and oversaw Philemon's sort of pastoring of a little house church in Colossae. So Paul is above Philemon, and Philemon is very much above Onesimus, who's Philemon's slave. And yet Paul, throughout this letter, sprinkling language about being a prisoner and being in chains and all those things that Philemon would probably hear and say, he's taking Onesimus' side. He's relating to my slave, not to me. And yet, at the same time, sometimes in the same breath, Paul uses that other type of language, which was the second one that I asked you to listen for, which was what? Being someone's partner or co-worker or co-laborer. All these words throughout the text where Paul is, in, you know, out of one side of his mouth saying, I'm a prisoner like you know who, and out of the other side of his mouth saying, imagine the work that we could do together for the gospel. If you consider me a partner, we are fellow laborers. And so he's balancing these two things, and it's just masterful. Uh, Martin Luther, who is one of the uh, fathers of the Protestant Reformation, in introducing this text, said that the the letter to Philemon is holy flattery. (laughs) Holy flattery. I thought that was good. Because he's kind of buttering up Philemon in some ways, but really preparing him for what he's about to say in other ways. So, he asks him to take Onesimus back, and then he goes a few steps farther, and I love this. It makes me laugh, and I I, I think that you will see the humor in this as we go through it. After asking him to take Onesimus back, what does he say? I know that you will do this, and I know that you will do what? Even more than I say. (laughs) What more could Philemon possibly do other than taking Onesimus back into the household? What's left? Setting him free. I have to read that as Paul saying, listen, I know you're going to do even more. I know you're going to do the right thing. I know you're going to do your duty. So Philemon, having already heard the bad news that Onesimus was coming back with a letter from Paul, (laughs) now has gone to the part of the letter where he's being essentially told he has to set him free. Great. And then Paul takes it another step. And he says, oh, one more thing. Would you prepare a room for me, please? Because I do intend to visit you as soon as I'm out of prison. By the way, pray for me. I'm going to come visit you. And implicit in that, obviously, is I'm going to check up on you. I'm going to see if you've done what I asked you to do. And then, as the letter's almost over, and Philemon is probably going, oh, he totally kick my butt on this. Paul throws this little thing at the end, and this makes me laugh. By the way, all your buddies who have been reading this letter over my shoulder, 
they all say hi. <laughs> uh, Epaphras is here. He says hi. Aristarchus, he also says hi. Damas and Luke, all your buddies, they've been watching me pen this letter, and they all say hello. They, they hope you're well. <laughs> they all now know what I've asked you to do. So not only will you have to answer to me, but you're going to look like an idiot in front of them. So, but at no point does Paul pull rank. He says he could. I could pull rank and just tell you you have to do this, but he doesn't do that. Instead, he uses this masterfully influential language, and he knows what he's getting out of the deal. And Philemon knows it pretty darn well by the end of it, too. And yet, Onesimus, the slave, doesn't exactly get off easy either, does he? What has Paul promised Onesimus when he returns to Philemon? Nothing. He's promised him that I will ask Philemon to take you back. Note, I have not pulled rank and told him he has to do it. But yeah, go back to that master, you know, who was harsh or who you had a disagreement with or whatever it was that made Onesimus flee. You go back there with no guarantees. How does that feel to Onesimus? So, so he, nobody really gets off easy in this scenario, which is part of good diplomacy sometimes. So, again, we're putting ourselves in Paul's place tonight. You're probably thinking about how Philemon felt and how Onesimus felt, but tonight we want to look at what Paul was doing here, why he wrote this the way he did and why he chose the words he did. Paul is being an advocate, and what he is seeking is nothing less than reconciliation between two parties who are at odds. And in order to accomplish this reconciliation, Paul has to employ some pretty serious diplomacy. And I've used that word a few times. Paul is being very diplomatic here. I have found that in my life, I sometimes end up being a, in a diplomatic role. And I kind of enjoy that role for the most part. But I was struck by something recently um, it occurred to me that in order to be diplomatic, you also have to have empathy. And I have never considered myself a particularly empathetic person. When I thought of empathy, I always thought of, you know, oh, I feel your pain, and I know how you feel, and I'm feeling that hurt right along with you. That's really not me. <laughs> it won't surprise any of you to learn. <laughs> and yet, and yet... I think empathy also is just the simple act and ability of putting yourself in somebody else's position, in someone else's shoes. And so Paul is not only a diplomat, but he's also full of empathy in this situation, I think. And of course, in order to have empathy, and this is where it gets hard, you have to have humility. Particularly if you're trying to be understanding of a person that you're in an argument with, that can be hard. You have to humble yourself and let go of your own pride in many ways. But even when you're seeking reconciliation between two parties, you have to be willing to humble yourself and let go of your own pride. Because Paul doesn't exactly take sides. You can tell he sort of wants to take Onesimus' side, 
But he doesn't quite go all the way toward doing that. He's being diplomatic. And of course, for reconciliation to happen, the parties involved, in order to be reconciled, have to compromise. They have to let go of something. And this is where it starts to get very interesting to me. What was the third thing I asked you to listen for when I read that chapter to you? The word what? Lord. And the word Lord, I think, in some ways, is the key to the whole thing. Because if you confess Jesus as your Lord, that kind of levels the playing field ever so slightly, doesn't it? If you say to Jesus, you are my Lord, Jesus will say to you, well, Scott, or Jim, or Anna, or whoever, if I'm your Lord, then guess what? You don't get to be anybody else's Lord. If I'm your master, you are the master of no one. And boom, that hierarchy is laid flat. And what Paul has done, saying that he is a slave in Christ, and using all this Lord language, and I don't want to give you the impression that Paul only calls Jesus Lord in this letter, because it's throughout all his letters. But every time he says Lord, I've got to think that, that Philemon, if he's being honest and forthright about his own faith, is being reminded of that flattened hierarchy. What Paul has done is said, okay, Philemon, here's the deal. I converted you to Christianity, and I converted Onesimus to Christianity, and I'm a Christian too. All three of us have the same Lord and the same Master. In one of his other letters, the, book to, the letter to the Galatians, one of my favorite verses in the New Testament, Galatians 3.28, um, and I don't have that in front of me, but it is on the screen, so I'll read it off the wall to you. Paul says, In Christ there is no longer Jew or Greek. There is no longer slave or free. There is no longer male and female. For all of you are one in Christ Jesus. And that's what he's saying to Philemon. You guys are, are one in Christ Jesus. And what he is doing is being Christ Jesus in this situation in a fascinating way. I, as I was preparing for this message, I read a sermon by N.T. Wright. Does anybody know N.T. Wright? He's an Anglican bishop, Bishop of Durham. And when I read his sermon on the book of Philemon, I was like, oh, I wanted to call in sick today because <laughs> it was so fine. It was a terrific sermon. So if you'll humor me for just a minute, I want to read to you just a little paragraph from his sermon where he starts to dr drill down on the idea of Paul playing a Christly role in this situation. And it's just after the part of the letter where Paul has said, I'm writing this with my own hand. If he owes you anything, I will repay it. And then Bishop Wright goes on to say this. And this will help if you imagine this in a British accent in your head. It'll smart, it'll sound smarter. But. 
And now we see what's going on. If this was the only document we had from early Christianity, we would already know something vital about the heart of the Christian message. Paul, standing between master and slave, is taking the pain and the guilt of their damaged relationship into himself. Charge it to my account, he says. And he knows that when that happens, it will be absorbed, dealt with. Where did Paul learn that? What pattern are we observing? Well, Paul, of course, learned that from Jesus himself, who stands between God and the world, master and slave, and takes into himself the debt that is owed and says, charge it to my account. Jesus, who put himself on the line for a whole world history of people who didn't deserve it. These are the central messages of the gospel, I think. First, that Jesus stands in our place and pays our debt, that he mediates for us, that he makes reconciliation between us and God possible. And secondly, that those of us who have heard that story and believed it and begun to follow after him must also seek reconciliation in the world, in our own lives and relationships, and in the big relationships and disputes of our day, whether it's arguments between our friends arguments between Jews and Arabs, black and white, men and women. As Christians, we have to believe that those categories are flattened. And we have to seek that reconciliation that Jesus made possible in our own lives. And we do that in two ways, I think. First, we do it by retelling it. And secondly, we do it by reliving it. We have to retell that story. That's one of our obligations. Now, you don't have to be like Paul and say, you know, just look at somebody and they believe Jesus. But you've got to tell that story one way or another. And you have to live the story too. You have to live at peace with one another. We have to live at peace with each other even in the midst of disagreement and dispute and struggle. One of the ways that the Christian church has always retold the story of Jesus is by celebrating the Lord's Supper. And that's one of the reasons why we do it every week here at Artisan. Every time you go to that table and do as Jesus said and break that bread and take that wine or juice you not only remember the story, but you retell it. You reenact it. You reenact that grand drama. That's part of what worshiping together is, a reenactment of the gospel story. And so I'd like to invite you who are following Jesus to come to the table 
and retell the story of reconciliation for yourself and for those who would watch you do that. But if you're going to take that bread and dip it in the wine or juice and then walk out of here like nothing happened and sow discord instead of peace and struggle instead of harmony and hatred instead of love, I can't stop you from doing that, but you're making a mockery of the story. Now, I also believe that's a means of grace, and we all make a mockery of that story every day. Do not hear me saying, if you are a sinner, you can't come to the communion table. That misses the point entirely. (laughs) But remember, after you've retold the story, that you need to relive it. Let me leave you with a few more words from N.T. Wright's sermon on Philemon. This is good for us to hear. We don't need people who will yell slogans from this side or that. We need people, we need organizations, we need churches who will devote and dedicate themselves to being instruments of peace, agents of reconciliation. So for the rest of our time together, this table's open for you. Retell that story. And as you worship together and prepare to leave this place, remember also that you must relive it. The peace of Christ be with you.